It's Monday, June the 28th, 2021. More than 2.9 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, in this last episode of The Jab, we'll look at what's next for the pandemic. We'll also hear from our data team. They've been tracking the world's patchy return to some form of normal life. Hi, Natasha, how are you? I'm great, thanks. I'm great. I've been giving a lot of thought about what I'm going to write next. And as you know, I'm really interested in the story about the origins of COVID-19, which is absolutely fascinating. And there's also a lot to say still about vaccines. And I'm interested in the fact that the Chinese vaccines look set to dominate world supply this year. And yet we really don't have a lot of information about how well they work and how well they're working. And yes, this is the final episode of The Jab. But Alok, you and I are going to be continuing the conversation in a one-off live event on the 7th of July. We'll be covering everything from vaccines to variants. We'd love all our listeners to be part of it. And we'll be answering your questions. You can already sign up for free on economist.com slash jab live. Yes, please do sign up. I'm really looking forward to it and also looking forward to finding out what is next in the next 12 months uh, from you, Natasha. This podcast is by no means everyone's last chance to hear from us. And joining us this week is Ed Carr, The Economist's deputy editor and stalwart panellist of The Jab. Ed, you're the COVID czar for the paper and oversee the pandemic coverage we've been doing for the past 15, 16 months. How much longer do you think we're going to need a COVID czar? Hi, Alec. Well, obviously, I don't mean to give up power easily. I don't surrender power easily. But I've got a feeling that actually, a bit more seriously, this thing is going to rumble on for a long time. And so rather as I think the disease itself will gradually fade, so the COVID zardom will will gradually sort of melt away until we just forget about it one day. Well, let's see if we can answer lots of questions before the COVID art disappears. Um, Next up, we're going to be hearing from someone who's been right at the centre of the recent health crisis. On the 8th of December 2020, Margaret Keenan, then 90 years old, became the world's first patient to receive a COVID-19 vaccine outside of a clinical trial. Since then, in a tremendous feat, more than 2.9 billion doses have been given globally. But to fully vaccinate everyone, including children, there's still more than 12 billion doses left to go. The world is only a fifth of the way there. For populations that are mostly vaccinated, it might seem like the pandemic is subsiding, but it's far from over. Globally, around 350,000 new infections and more than 8,000 deaths are being recorded each day. Natasha, you've been speaking to someone who's been at the heart of the worldwide response to this pandemic. Yeah, so I interviewed uh, Dr. Sumya Swaminathan, 
She's the chief scientist at the World Health Organization. She's been leading their efforts on COVID vaccines. And we talked about COVAX, the global vaccine sharing initiative. And one of the first things I wanted to know from her was what was the moment that she first had that sinking feeling that this was going to be a really serious global health crisis? I can't pinpoint a moment, but clearly those weeks in February when we saw every day practically the virus being detected in a new country uh, and very rapidly spreading across, we recognized then that it was all over and uh, that it was going to be hard to stop it. So has this pandemic unfolded the way you expected? Well, it's been full of surprises. In terms of the science, I think this virus has properties that were not expected before from what we know from other coronaviruses, like the transmission that occurs from asymptomatic people, the fact that it affects so many organ systems beyond the respiratory system, and that there's a very complex immune response to this. On the non-scientific side, I think there's been an amazing lack of global solidarity in terms of the actual response. And that's quite interesting. I was going to go on and ask you what are the highs and lows of how the world had handled the pandemic? I think the highs are definitely the way that science delivered, how rapidly it delivered the tools that we needed. In terms of the disappointments, we thought we would have learned from previous experiences where the developing world was left behind and had to wait for decades sometimes to catch up with vaccines and drugs that were available in uh, high-income countries. But it seems that we have not learned from history and that we are condemned to repeating history all over again. And that's been extremely disappointing for me and my colleagues in WHO and amongst the COVAX partners. And that brings me to my next question, which is what do you think might have been the biggest missteps in the way the world's handled the pandemic so far? Well, I think right from the beginning, if we had had a sort of global consensus and agreement on the different steps that would be taken at different stages, including on some of the public health measures, the travel and trade restrictions, the supply chains that were interrupted and continue to remain interrupted because of trade restrictions, the disparities in the measures that countries have taken and the lack of coordination and consensus. And I think most importantly, the problems that have arisen with sharing of data, sharing of pathogen samples, and of course now the sharing of vaccines and diagnostics. There wasn't an agreement on how this would be done. And while there's been a lot of rhetoric over the last few months, this has not really translated yet into the kind of impact that we would like to see. With regards to what we might do better next time, I mean, we have COVAX as a mechanism that has been established and also the WHO is setting up these mRNA hubs all around the world. Isn't it fair to say that when the next pandemic happens, we will be in a position to respond certainly with vaccines much more quickly? I hope so. And I think we must learn from the successes and failures of COVAX and the ACT Accelerator in general. And I think if we now look back, what was missing was a fund at that time, which could have enabled COVAX to have invested in vaccines at early stages of development, just like some of the high-income countries were able to do and to book uh, doses well in advance. And then also, of course, the allocation mechanism that we developed through WHO. If these things pre-existed and could have been mobilized very quickly, 
then I think COVAX could have been even more successful than it has been. Let's just talk a bit more about the vaccination effort. It seems to me we're at a bit of a turning point and we're going to get a lot more supply coming in. But also we've finally seen big countries, the G7 countries, all start to make commitments and also to start to share vaccines. What do you think are the most important things that need to happen now to ensure that vaccines are distributed equitably around the world in the next six to 12 months? I think the first thing is that all such efforts should be through COVAX because COVAX has a well thought out and a well developed framework and system for equitable distribution of vaccines. The second is that this needs to happen right away. And we know that several countries now are reaching levels of population coverage of 40 and 50%. The most vulnerable have already been protected. This is the time now to share those doses with COVAX so that the healthcare workers, the elderly in other countries can also be protected. We cannot wait till the end of the year. We then need to make sure that countries remove all export barriers and enable the free movement of raw materials and ingredients so that supply chains are intact and that vaccine manufacturers can maximize the production. And then, of course, we want to encourage more licensing agreements between those who have licenses for highly effective and safe vaccines and producers around the world who have the capacity and the interest to want to produce vaccines. Taking a step out again and looking at the pandemic, what do you imagine the next 12 months are going to look like? Well, what I hope is that we will be able to significantly increase vaccine coverage in countries around the world so that we prevent deaths. I think the most sad thing to see today is that we still have 10,000 deaths a day and these should not be occurring. So that, I hope, will stop in the next few months. And then we go on, of course, to protecting people and reducing transmission. The worry here is that the virus continues to develop mutations, which are giving it a fitness advantage, and that some of the recent variants are very worrying because we don't want to be in a situation where we develop a variant that's resistant to vaccines. Do we know enough about this virus yet to predict how it's going to evolve from here on in, or are we still flying blind? No, we know a lot about the virus. And I think what's encouraging for me is the fact that the immune response seems to be fairly strong and sustained. And what we can hope for is that this virus then becomes an endemic infection like other coronaviruses that results in mild illness, but doesn't have the kind of impact that it's having now. That's the best case scenario, I think. But a lot of things have to happen well to get there. Uh, If, on the other hand, we get a variant that is able to evade existing immune responses, including with vaccination, then, of course, we're starting all over again with practically a new virus. And I just hope that that doesn't happen. In the longer term, societies are going to need to adjust, aren't they, to live with this virus. Do you think a return to normal is actually even possible? Yes, I think, of course, economies and societies will go back But whether we go back to being exactly the way we were or whether things like mask wearing become much more a part of our day-to-day life when we're in crowded settings, at least for the next few years to come, I'm sure that there are going to be some changes in our personal behavior, as well as there would need to be changes in the public health mechanisms. And one of the things that's become clear is that countries need to invest much more in public health systems, in surveillance, 
in workforce so that we're able to undertake cluster investigations. We're able to identify when something unusual is happening and take early action to prevent those infections from spreading. And I think this applies to all countries, including very high-income countries. Are you optimistic about the future? I am optimistic. I am optimistic. And again, from my vantage point of being the chief scientist at the WHO, I see the incredible commitment, energy, hard work that scientists around the world are continuing to do to get us even closer to that goal of getting out of this pandemic as soon as possible. Global vaccine equity, that seems to be the most important story right now in how this pandemic proceeds. Um, Earlier this month, G7 leaders agreed to donate a billion doses to poorer countries over the next year. Natasha, do you think that's going to actually happen? Yes, it will. The issue is all about timing. COVAX is going to get its two billion doses this year. The problem is that much of this is going to arrive at the end of the year in such a torrent, it may exceed the capacity of countries to actually absorb all these jabs. And so what everyone's been saying to the G7 for months now is we need vaccine to deliver right now. And so the question is whether the G7 countries are now going to make that happen. The thing which most bothers me is the gap between the rhetoric in the rich countries and their actual actions. I mean, they need to start releasing doses. We'll go from a shortage of global vaccines to a surplus at some point towards the end of the year. But we need doses now. And there has to be some sense of weighting the priorities. You're saving lives if you give someone who's over 50 or 60 in a developing country a vaccine. You're not saving any lives to speak of if you're vaccinating someone under 15. You're just not. This has been the World Health Organization line as well, hasn't it, Natasha, that we should be getting vaccines to vulnerable people in the poorer parts of the world before younger people elsewhere. So nine doctors in Uganda died recently. And why did that happen? Why were these people not vaccinated? Healthcare workers in low-income countries are just some of the planet's most precious human capital, and we have to protect these people. And we're six months into this massive vaccination campaign, and the fact that all the world's healthcare workers are just not vaccinated, to me, is really shocking and disturbing. Let's talk about the virus itself. Everyone's talking about the Delta variant, which was first detected in India some months ago. It's taking over the UK. It's on the rise in the US as well. Natasha, uh, what's your feeling about where it's going to go? Delta is going to spread around the world. The big unknown, of course, is how hard Africa is going to be hit by it. Now, Africa's going through its third wave. It's being hit by a different variant. And although the numbers are grim now, The region still hasn't been hit as hard as other parts of the world, even given that we're undercounting there. And part of the reason for this is their demographic, okay? The populations are not as old or as fat as Europeans or those in Latin America. But this variant is more transmissible and it does seem to affect younger people. So that is a concern. And remember, when you get COVID in Africa, you're much more likely to die. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at the Delta variant is that in rich countries, it's going to find unvaccinated pockets and it's going to find those relentlessly. But if you look at the rates of death and admissions to hospital in Britain, for instance, one needs a sense of perspective, I guess. If You know, something like 8,700 people a week were dying in January. At the moment, it's 60 a week in the UK. 
where the Delta variant is now 90% of all cases. The thing which really worries me about the Delta variant is in whole countries and continents that haven't been vaccinated. The simple fact it's so much more transmissible will lead to a lot of deaths. I guess there's one more thing to say about this variant and others, which is the world isn't starting from scratch if a variant evades a vaccine. The mechanisms, the proof of concept of mRNA vaccines and others is there. Producing a new spike protein from the new variant that escapes the existing vaccines is a much, much easier job than it was to produce the vaccine first time around. So I think these variants are scary, but we want a sense of perspective, which is that this disease is never going to be as scary and frightening as it was last year. And it's worth underlining your point there that transmissibility is really, really important. The more people get it, especially in unvaccinated regions, the more chance that the virus mutates even further just because there are more cases and more replications of the virus going on. So the world isn't safe until every single person has been vaccinated. Can I wind up by just asking you both for your thoughts on how the World Health Organization has handled the pandemic. I mean, it's an organization that's constantly under fire. And I just wonder if you could take stock of uh, its performance over the last year and a half. Uh, Natasha? I'm going to give the individuals inside WHO a 10 out of 10. They really have worked incredibly hard in the most trying and difficult of circumstances. But the institution, I'll give it a six and a half out of 10. It was slow on a number of things, whether it was calling the pandemic or supporting universal masking And I'm not even sure it did very well on the whole kind of airborne debate. And this was the issue of whether COVID was mainly transmitted through droplets or the kind of really small light aerosols that hang around in the air. More broadly, the world has created an institution to do a big job. And it's never really been given the kind of power or freedom or money to accomplish what we would like it to do. As um, Jeremy Farrar, the head of the Wellcome Trust, once told me, the greatest strength of the World Health Organization is that it moves by unanimity. And the greatest weakness of the World Health Organization is that it moves by unanimity. So it's constantly hamstrung. And um, and just about your airborne point, because this is my hobby horse, I don't think they did very well at all on the airborne front. They're still not doing very well at all on the airborne transmission front. Uh, Ed, final word to you. What do you think of the World Health Organization's performance? I divide its behaviour into sort of unforced errors and forced errors. And the unforced errors are exactly things like masking and airborne transmission, as you say. But the unforced errors are things like its dealings with China. It became completely innocently caught up in the culture wars in the United States, which is just incredibly unhelpful at a time like this. So it's fallible and it could have done better and some of the mistakes it made were its own mistakes but it is the organisation that the rest of the world has created and for the rest of the world to turn around and sort of blame it for the design faults that it built in is a bit rich To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more take out a subscription you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash the jab pod A story that caught my eye recently was all about education during the pandemic. By mid-April 2020, more than 9 in 10 of the world's learners had been locked out of their classrooms. And as some pupils return, education reformers hope that the shock that the pandemic's caused could lead to changes that would make schools more efficient, more flexible and fairer. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash the jab pod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. 
Remember 2019? For many, overseas travel was simple. The commute to work was a daily ritual. And large groups of people without masks didn't tend to provoke the worry they do today. Ever since the onset of the pandemic 15 months ago, many have wondered when, and perhaps if ever, the world would get back to normal. For some of the world's vaccinated populations, restrictions have now started to ease, and some freedoms are returning. But daily life has changed throughout the pandemic. How many of those changes are going to stick? My name's James Francham. I'm a data journalist on The Economist data team. James and The Economist data team have been working on a way to track the return to normality. Their latest tool traces how people's behaviour has been changing over the course of the pandemic and gives us a way to look at which countries are edging closer to a return to normal. What we've done is gathered high-frequency data for 50 countries in total. And these 50 countries represent about 90% of GDP and about 80% of world population. There's eight indicators, eight variables, and they split in broadly to three categories. The first can be thought of as transport, so there's road congestion, there's public transport usage in big cities, as measured by Google Mobility, and there's flights data. And then second, we try to measure how people are kind of spending their leisure time. So that is the amount of time spent outside of the home. There's movie box office takings, and there is attendance at professional sports events. And then finally, our third category is to measure footfall in shops and the occupancy of workplaces. So we've got our three categories, eight indicators, and then we weight each of those to come up with an overall index of normality. The tracker distills all of this data into an index with a baseline of 100. 100 represents the level of normality in January 2019. By tracking how this number changes over time, we can demonstrate how behaviour has changed. And we've turned that global index into sound. If you take the value of 100 as the pre-pandemic norm, then at the beginning of March 2020, our global normality index slumped from a value of 80. It was a value of 80 there because China's pandemic restrictions were at full tilt at that time, to just 32 in mid-April as the coronavirus spread around the world. And then our index rose rapidly from mid-April and it hit 50 in July 2020 or thereabouts. And then it rose again in the September of last year. And it has until recently kind of waxed and waned around an average level of about 60 as restrictions have come in and out and countries have had to respond to rising infection rates. But in the past two weeks, it has risen to a level of 68. So James, did you find that the return to normality is being driven by vaccination? Yes and no. It depends where you look. So in Western Europe, for example, and North America, yes, there's a strong correlation between rates of vaccination and the level of normality. However, as perhaps you'd expect, in Asia, that link really isn't as strong. And that's because there you've had strong vaccination rates of late, but two, three months ago, vaccine programmes weren't going along at a particularly fast rate and therefore behaviour was still halfway towards normal thereabouts. So tell me what Britain's normality index is right now. 
What we see in Britain is that normality fell, as it did in much of the rest of particularly Europe and North America at the start of the pandemic. And then actually normality peaked in about October last year at a level of about 45. And then as the kind of winter wave kicked in, it then fell dramatically again and bottomed out at a similar level in January this year to the level that we experienced in the spring before. And then since then, it's really risen fairly steadily and currently sits at a value of 60. So you can clearly see there that since Britain's vaccination programme has kicked in, that has allowed behaviour to return towards some semblance of normal. That's so interesting. By your index, it's only 60s. It's not 100. It's not back to normality. But it's amazing how even 60 feels like quite freeing, given what's been happening in the last year. Um, Can you give us another example? How about um, America? A lot has been put on this year's Independence Day celebrations, which will happen on July the 4th. And the overall index for America is currently at about 68. So it's doing pretty well. And again, I think you would say that is as a function of its vaccination programme. Let's take one more example. What is the normality index for India? They're just coming out of a horrific time. I just wonder what you can say about their lives right now. India's had an awful recent wave, and that really does reflect in the data that we see. So the index went from a value of about 25 in May of this year, and it currently sits at about 45, 50. So it's in a process of recovery there. Well, I'm still struck by 25, and that just gives a number onto how awful the situation was in India a few months ago when we were all looking at the cases rising up. Um, I just wonder, is there an indication of when countries start getting back to 100? Is that ever going to happen? That was basically one of the main objectives of getting all these numbers together to see, you know, will we actually return to normal? What did normal look and feel like? What behaviours will be a thing of the past and what behaviours will persist? And I think for things like working from home, for example, you may have office occupancy at perhaps four-fifths or three-fifths of the level that existed pre-pandemic. So we might expect office occupancy not to return to normal levels. On the other hand, things like cinema, box office takings or uh, attendance at sports games, I think all are hoping that those things that people seek enjoyment from will return to levels that match pre-pandemic highs. So that's the point of the index and and that's what we'll be tracking over the coming months. Ed, can I ask you to respond to some of the findings from uh, the Normality Tracker? Was there anything in there that particularly intrigued or surprised you? Yeah, the thing which strikes me about this is that activities that are up to individuals, like going shopping or going to the cinema, those kind of things seem to recover much more quickly than big organised events like sporting events and flying where you need some sort of regulators involved in effect. And I find that quite encouraging, I guess, because I think it suggests that people themselves, when they feel safe, they want to get back to their life. And the thing that's sort of dragging is official bodies who've got to take decisions by committees and they're a bit slower. They're a bit slower and plenty of people have made mistakes so they don't want to make mistakes again and perhaps being a bit cautious. Exactly. Natasha, what about you? Can you reflect on some of the numbers that James talked about? One of the things that strikes me is this has been a huge social upheaval for us, a major, major shift. And although we will get back to normal, it won't be number 100, will it? Because 
we will change the way we do things, I think, in the long term. People will still want to wear masks, I think, for quite some time. And people will want to work from home more. So I think we have had quite a forced pattern of change. The normal actually has changed. I agree. And the idea that 100 is normal, it's, it's actually a different normal. So that shouldn't be the number that we chase for. But can I just ask you both, Britain's in at, at 60% of normality. It surprised me that we were so low, actually, given that it feels much more free and normal than perhaps it, well, it definitely feels much more than last year. Uh, I just wanted to know if that number rings true for your, your lives in London. I think it does, actually, if I'm really honest. I'd hope to have a barbecue with some friends in their garden this weekend and the rain doesn't look good. But that's just British and weather. We were having Come a dis- on, that's nice that's to normal. the pandemic. So that's very normal. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's 100. So then came the question of, should we try and get a table in a restaurant? And that becomes quite problematic. And, you know, can we sit outside and will we need two tables? And do you know what? We just said, forget it. Let's just not do it. And that kind of was a real reminder that actually things aren't quite as normal as we'd like them to be. Ed? Well, I I was coming into work this morning. I'm in the office at the moment, and it was great to see a crocodile of school children walking off to going somewhere, and uh, the tube was quite busy. So I think all that feels quite normal. And I reckon that 40% margin that James spoke about, things like flights, you know, no one's flying anywhere. Well, that's a pretty big dent on the index. I was, she was looking at a poll recently of the US, which looked just over the last month from May to June. You know, improvements all over, 25 percentage point increase in the proportion of people who think they're going to go out to a bar or a restaurant. 15 percentage point increase in the people attending a sporting event. And the people who are going to visit friends or families almost back up to its pre-pandemic level. So, you know, these things can change really quite quickly. Well, let's hope so. Um, Anyone who wants to read about the normality tracker can do so in the next issue of The Economist. And uh, on the website, you can even go through your individual countries. So it's something to keep an eye on as freedoms change in the next few months. As we've said already, this is the last episode of The Jab, so allow us to get a little reflective. Let's look back for a moment on some of the themes we've explored and the voices we've heard on this show. Well, I think it was always kind of the nightmare scenario that was in the back of our minds. I mean, it was clear because we kept seeing more and more frequent spillover events. That's events from viruses, from animals to humans, if this would occur. It was a very difficult decision to make. Do we wait for six months to get and see the trial data before we back a vaccine or not? The data is telling us that regardless of the health condition of the individuals, we see always the same kind of efficacy in the range of 90 to 95 percent, which is, of course, very encouraging. Because we're using a platform technology, it's pretty quick to put a new sequence in, a new coronavirus spike sequence taken from one of the new variants and start all over again. And it doesn't mean that we have to go through the whole of the year's work again. We just have to produce a new vaccine seed stock. So the first small amount of vaccine that we then use to manufacture all the rest of the vaccine from. We perhaps put too much emphasis on the on and off switch of herd immunity. You can get people vaccinated and dramatically diminish the level of infection even before you reach herd immunity. I remember overall during much of the talk about 
black vaccine hesitancy, feeling frustrated by how little of our concerns were really understood by public health officials and the media. And I wanted more of a deep understanding of our concerns and the respectful approach of our concerns. And I think that that is also needed here for white evangelicals. When we started and we said, you're only safe if everyone is safe, people were, well, no, I'm not really, I don't believe that or I don't think that's important. But as the new variants appeared, people began to realize that if there are large parts of the world where there is no vaccination, then you're likely to have these types of mutations. And of course, it threatens everybody. It's inevitable that there are variants in the world that we don't know about because we're not able to sequence them. But for me, sequencing is in the same bucket as vaccines in terms of equity. If by the end of 2022, we have not vaccinated at least 60% of our population, then we have to begin to tweak our strategy at a continental level as to how to live with this virus, because it would have entrenched itself, embedded itself on the continent. The success in controlling COVID for much of 2020 is becoming, you know, how do we get ourselves out from keeping borders closed? Vaccination is the only way out. We've covered a lot of things in this series, and the coverage of the pandemic, of course, will continue in The Economist. Ed, as COVID's are, what are the priorities for the next few months? So next week, we've got a huge package of stuff, both using James's look at tracking normality and a look at the variants and the cost and benefits of lockdown as well as life in the office and the media. And then in future, I, I think we'll have tons of COVID coverage. And I guess if you want to follow that, you need to get a subscription where you can enjoy our COVID coverage, newsletters, films, podcasts, and of course, the weekly news. To get the best subscription offer, you need to go to economist.com slash the jab pod. Now, as it is the end of the series, I want to get some closing thoughts from both of you and also Oliver Morton and Slavia Chankova as well, who are the other regular panellists uh, on The Jab. Here, here's my first question. Um, can you remember the moment when you realised how serious the pandemic was going to be? Here's what Oliver Morton and Slavia Chankova said. I remember the middle of January, a conversation that Natasha and Ed and I and some others had with Seth Berkeley of Gavi, the vaccine initiative. He said that this could kill millions. And I knew he was telling the truth. And from then on, I knew that intellectually, but it took me two months or so to really catch up emotionally. I remember about two months after that, I was standing outside my house on a rather silent street thinking that there were immunocompromised friends that I might never see again. Um, and luckily I have seen them again, but uh, it was a strange time of sort of like running to catch up with where you knew the story was going, but couldn't yet really believe it was going. It was late February. Hospitals in Italy were overwhelmed. It was spreading all over Europe and America. And I thought, my God, if this is Europe and America, what is going to happen in places like India and Africa? I had that one day in late February when I came home very late. I was working crazy hours and um, I just sat down and cried. It was this, this despair about what was going to happen to the world. Ed, when did you realise this was going to be as serious as it has become? 
Well, there are a couple of moments, but it really sank home emotionally when I was at a conference about the Middle East and the news came through about Iran. And if you remember, it was a time when Iran was saying it was absolutely fine and, and the health minister fell ill with COVID in the middle of that news conference. And you got the sense that this disease was not supposed to be in Iran. It shouldn't have been there. And it is clearly spreading really fast. And at that point, I got onto the phone and called the editor and said, this is, this is actually much worse than I thought. We'd already had a cover saying this might go global. But that was the moment I realized we were in big trouble. Natasha? So I had an initial uh-oh moment, but it wasn't until the pictures from Italy that we realized what impact it was going to have outside of China. And I think the penny really dropped when I saw those pictures and the horror of that situation. Okay, next question we wanted to ask was, what are your predictions for the next 12 months? Here's what Slavia said. I think sometime in the first half of next year, the pandemic will be declared officially over. By the end of this year, most people in the world will be vaccinated or will have had COVID. So they will have some immunity. Um, but before that, unfortunately, we'll probably see a really bad epidemic in Africa, similar to that in India and Brazil. And Europe and America will struggle with the Delta variant uh, in the coming months. Natasha, what's your one prediction for next year? I think for most people, vaccine durability against the existing variants will be shown to be lasting for a long time and will assume last for years. I think some groups will need third doses, but that is all dependent on where the variants go, of course. And Ed? Yeah, my prediction for the next 12 months is of a sort of bifurcation of countries that have vaccine and those that don't. You know, there'll be, there'll be flare-ups in countries that have vaccine, but nothing really too bad. But it's in the rest of the world I worry, and particularly, as Natasha said, in Africa. The final question that I wanted to put to everyone was, have there been any positives that have come out of the pandemic that perhaps might be a silver lining to this enormous cloud hanging over us the last year, Natasha? I could talk about this for half an hour, but I won't. Um, genomic surveillance digital clinical trials, which make trials easier, health data sharing, an interest in public health, an effort to share mRNA technology, interest in the immune system and how it works. So I think this is going to kickstart a lot of scientific endeavour in really important areas. And I kind of am really hopeful that public health is going to get a sort of shot in the arm, if you like, as well. That's incredibly positive. Um, Ed, what's your silver lining? I am broadly a sort of techno-optimist, so I think the acceleration of all sorts of digital things is broadly good. I think it's made people think in a new way about work and how offices work. I think that's good. And I even see a silver lining in some of the shortcomings that Sumia was talking about earlier with COVAX, because I think the realisation that we need global structures I think that's a good thing to learn. It would have been better if we'd learned it before the pandemic, but the second best is to learn it afterwards. Now, normally at the end of the show, I ask uh, the panellists for a story that they've seen that uh, they want to bring to the attention of our listeners. But uh, since it's the end 
of the entire series, I'm going to use host privilege and just give my own story. This is a bit of a cognitive behavioral therapy, basically, for me. Last week, uh, Natasha talked about trypanophobia, the fear of needles, which I think I probably have, given that I can't even talk about needles without getting a creeping feeling all over me. And uh, this whole podcast is basically all about needles. So imagine my my horror for the last 20 weeks. <laughs> so anyway, um, I've been looking up how you get over a fear of needles. I found an article by a doctor who um, suggests some techniques. So here's a sort of step through guide for anyone who's hesitant because of the fear of needles. The first thing is to look away. Another one is to expose yourself to needles. This one, the idea of it was horrific to me. The idea is to watch people have injections. I can't even do that. Um, The final one, which I thought actually might be practical is this has been shown to work. If you are feeling faint whenever there's a needle around, then the doctor suggests that you should tense all your muscles as much as possible for about five seconds and then relax and do it two or three times. And that actually makes your blood pressure go up, which stops you from fainting because, you know, that's obviously what fainting is when your blood pressure goes down. So there's a physical way of stopping yourself from essentially falling over. And I tried it. I wasn't having a jab this morning and actually just makes you feel much more positive about everything. So, you know, I think do that. Tense everything up, relax, like a sort of form of yoga. (laughs) I've got one more thing to recommend, which is I think you should volunteer to administer jabs in one of your local health centres. Me? Yeah. And you you will overcome your fear of jabs simply by administering lots. I had to give my wife a few injections after... She had our second baby and it, honestly, I fainted almost every day to do it. It was awful. It's one of the reasons I didn't become a doctor, Ed. Well, medicine's loss is journalism's gain, Alok. <laughs> there's, anyway, there's a deep, um, deep irony in you running this show, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Natasha, Ed, thank you both so much. Thank you, Alok. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you too, Alok. It's been so much fun. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. Thanks to Daniel Lloyd-Evans for additional sound design. If you liked the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at And don't forget, Natasha and I will be answering your questions at a one-off live event on the 7th of July, covering everything you wanted to know about the pandemic and vaccines. We'd love you all to take part, so sign up for free at economist.com slash jab live. In the meantime, remember, all episodes of The Jab are still available if you want to hear Natasha, Ed, Oliver and Slavea's analysis of the pandemic and the race to vaccinate the world over the past few months. A big thanks from all of us for listening.